This is Winter is Here, a podcast where we discuss how we arrived at the global battle between tyranny and democracy, and more importantly, how we can win. I'm your host, Yuri Lepstein, Executive Director of the Renew Democracy Initiative. I'm joined today by John Avalon, a senior political analyst and anchor at CNN and the former editor-in-chief and managing director of The Daily Beast. He is also the author of several books, including most recently, Lincoln and the Fight for Peace. Welcome, John. Thanks for joining me. Great to see you, Uriel. Looking forward to the conversation. So why don't we start here? You know, this is something you and I have talked about a lot, which is that the American people seem to have lost a certain amount of faith in democracy. I mean, I don't think that's Mm. a particularly shocking thing to say, uh, which is, I think, especially dangerous. Should be shocking. I think we've gotten numb to it. (laughs) It should be. You're absolutely right. Unfortunately, I'm not sure it is. You know, and of course, this is happening at a particularly dangerous moment in time when democracy is under attack all over the world, most pressingly, most urgently in Ukraine, uh, where Russia, of course, as everyone knows, has invaded the country and is looking to essentially destroy it. But one of the things that I find really interesting about the response to Russia's war against Ukraine is that. I've heard from some folks that it has reminded them a little bit of the virtue of democracy, of, of how important democracy is, mm-hmm. uh, you know, because the Ukrainians are fighting and dying for it. Do you think that the war in Ukraine might actually, in kind of a strange way, help us rediscover that faith in democracy? I do. And I think it because it provides a moment of clarity where the, the, the stakes are really revealed to be what, in fact, they are. You know, we have slid into this dangerous place by taking democracy for granted, by buying into a certain moral relativism that's been pushed by autocracies who have basically promised wealth without liberty. And a lot of people, sometimes under the auspices of, uh, you know, internationalism or what's good for business, corporate earnings, that uh, causes them to believe that there is not a deep desire for freedom and democracy that is a birthright. Uh, for people under under the the auspices of self determination, we've slipped into that moral relativism, and then suddenly, and you saw a lot of people excusing Vladimir Putin in the run up to the attack, and indeed, even Vladimir Putin himself has become a figure of some veneration on the right uh, in in recent years, where you know he was on the cover of Newsmax as Vlad the Great <laughs> several months ago. <laughs> I, I must have missed that cover. Go pull it. Um, And of course, that was simply uh, part of a much larger lauding of Vladimir Putin that goes back to a lot of paleocons pre-Trump and certainly uh, Trump and and his nationalists in the administration, uh, which I think has been deeply naive. And and I think that position has been exposed as naive. And now we have to confront the real stakes. Uh, There is a global contest between autocracy and democracy. I don't think we can afford to be neutral in that. And if that is what it takes to wake people up, the Ukrainian people's fight for survival and self-determination, that is a, a, a silver lining for the horror that is occurring. But I think we've done ourselves a great disservice by taking democracy and, frankly, the, the liberal international order that was secured by the United States and its allies after the First World War, uh, Second World War for granted. I obviously I couldn't agree more. You know, and one of the trends that I've noticed you know, in, in, increasingly, I, I got into this Twitter spat with uh, Josh Hammer from Newsweek around, you know, around these issues. And, and in the responses I know from both him and, and, and a lot of his sort of Claremont Institute type followers, 
one of the things I noticed was that people, they were trying to make a distinction between Viktor Orban and Putin and basically say, look, you know, we may have to come to terms with Putin, but we don't like him. Meanwhile, Orban, totally different beast. We, we are big fans of Orban. You know, he's wonderful. And so I wonder, what do you make of people who try to draw that kind of distinction? Well, I, I think the veneration of Viktor Orban is absolutely sincere on the part of people at Claremont and people who are really pining away for a Christian nationalist vision of society that is, you know, takes all the nationalist and populist elements and, and puts them on the Danube. I think that Viktor Orban's victory was excused by a lot of uh, those folks, despite the fact that, of course, he did a lot to, uh, in his most recent victory, do the sorts of power grabs that we're familiar with, uh, but haven't seen quite as aggressively. I mean, basically delegitimizing the opposition of former extreme gerrymandering, attacking the courts, you know, packing the legislatures, etc. But in this recent speech he gave, which I think is being called in shorthand a, 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 the Nazi speech, but really was sort of a virulently racist speech. And one of his top aides, who happened to be Jewish, resigned mm. in protest. I think that, to some extent, gives away the ghost. You know, when people show you who they are, believe them. And what Viktor Orban has done is the same version of the, you know, just give up a few civil liberties, you know, for order. When you start chasing out, at, you know, universities— under the name of ideology, the, the whole catalog of things that Viktor Orban has done that have really made Hungary a an autocracy with sort of nationalist and Christian identity politics trappings, that's what's attracted a lot of folks to that. But I think it's important to understand what lies beneath it and the willful blindness that occurs in the people who venerate Orban while excusing uh, actions that they would be presumably horrified if a uh, democratic capital D, mm. president of a country did them, I, I think speaks to the fundamental problem. You know, we, we are applying different standards to different politicians and political leaders based on um, our partisan or ideological fealty. And that's the fundamental problem. You know, I'll go old school on you. Grover Cleveland once said a Democratic <laughs> crook is, uh, is just as bad as a Republican crook. That should be common sense. We need to apply the same standards. That doesn't mean we can't have great and vibrant disagreements. Uh, but when it starts sliding into uh, justifications for autocracy and all that go with it, you know, then I think we're, we're, we're in a different realm where we're not using the same standards. Yeah, I mean, I think it, I think we've seen far too many examples of I mean, you know, we see this a lot on the right, but I think it also exists on the left, basically of excusing bad behavior so long as it's on your side. Correct. But one of the things that I think is interesting, as, specifically as it relates to a lot of the conversation around Russia, the invasion and so forth is how I think we're seeing kind of the horseshoe theory in action, right? This idea that the far left and the far right end up actually meeting one another at the extremes, yeah. right? And so, yeah, you have, you know, Josh Hammer, you've got Tucker Carlson, you've got, you know, these sort of NatCon. Glenn Greenwald. Yeah. But at the, on the other hand, yeah, you've got Glenn Greenwald, you've got Tulsi Gabbard, you've got Noam Chomsky uh, just over the weekend all essentially coming out, you know, I, I hesitate to say in Putin's defense, but for all intents and purposes, in Putin's defense. You know, it's a great question, Uriel, about what are the common characteristics that can lead to horseshoe theory? The overlapping characteristics or, or drivers of folks on the far right and far left where they start to resemble each other. And I, I had a great conversation with my friend uh, John Haidt, uh, NYU professor, author of The Righteous Mind and many other uh, works about this. 
and, and, and some studies have shown certain psychological overlaps uh, between folks on, on the far right and the far left. There's a tendency to divide the world into groups, to blame groups, different groups to be sure, for all, all that uh, ails them. There can be a tendency towards conspiracies, a certain uh, an authoritarian mindset, albeit from uh, your side, quote-unquote, an intolerance for ambiguity. You know, one of the things that my book Wingnuts deals with is the question of after 9-11, how were people 9-11 truthers? And one of the things you see uh, commonalities in people who subscribe to conspiracy theories is they need to sense, feel a real sense of belonging. They feel alienated often within themselves. They need to feel like they belong to a larger group. They're susceptible to claims of special knowledge. And the idea of a disordered world is so scary to them because they themselves feel disordered that they uh, search for order in, in these conspiracies or ideologies that can make the world feel slightly less chaotic, even if it's uh, laden with danger. And I do think the opposite of those tendencies to view, to search for the good in people, not the worst, to view people as individuals, not as members of groups, primarily to believe that there's more that unites us than divides us. Those are signifiers of, of I think, the best traditions of, of liberal democracy that, and, 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 a, and a mindset that makes things work. But, you know, there are dissertations and books written about this. I, isolationism is only one characteristic uh, that in the distant past, including the interwar years between World War I and World War II, that could create coalitions between the far right and the far left. And we're seeing some of those echo on. But uh, that kind of fragmentation and, and cynicism, and I think uh, deep suspicion to the U.S. government and hostility very often to, to America is one of the things that uh, unites them. Not to say that there's a, uh, we can have debates about the different flavors of, of patriotism. Very often there is a, uh, uh, an anti-government impulse and a, a war with America as it is and a susceptibility to utopian appeals, which history also shows us usually end in nightmares. So what is that strand, right? What is it that unites the sort of Noam Chomsky, Glenn Greenwald left with the Tucker Carlson uh, you know, NatCon CPAC, right? <laughs> it's a great question, and it, it's it's a it's a it's a very deep question. And, and by deep, I mean, you know, to some extent, it, it's a marriage of convenience based on you know the enemy of my enemy is my friend. One of the things you'll notice from many of the folks you mentioned is a a refusal to ever denounce anything that Donald Trump does. Sometimes there's a to be sure clause. <laughs> You know, <laughs> to be sure, I don't approve, but... And, and, and frankly, the same thing for many of those people uh, goes with Vladimir Putin. They mm. will um, uh, be exquisitely sensitive at any perceived derivation from their ideal, particularly when it's done by Democrats or an American president or you know, Joe Biden in particular, but Barack Obama before that. And often in the name of alleged principles, but those principles have a way of evaporating uh, or at least, you know, having this enormous blind spot that, that you have to believe is, is willful blindness. So in some cases, I think the antipathy is to the Democratic Party or Democratic presidents or obsessions with liberal hypocrisy at the expense of underlying principles that can unite us in terms of liberal values. Many conservatives saying they're classical liberals. Frankly, one of the things I think we need to be doing is redefining liberal values in a way that we can come up with a broad set of principles that we'd agree upon that can help us navigate the thicket 
of culture war fights and, and, and other things that sometimes distract us from focusing on the really big picture. I think we need to recommit to a social contract. But I think that there's a strain of isolationism and nationalism, a anger at the center left and the center right. And I think at the end of the day, in many cases, an obsession with perceptions of, of decline in democracies that de facto or outright lead people to admire autocracies. And I, I just remind us that we saw variations on the theme. And by the way, I think this is sort of the subject of a, of a thesis, a buff. <laughs> uh, but in the 1930s, we saw similar strains. Mm. Uh, we saw people on the right and the left buy into the idea that democracy's best days were behind them, that democracies were divided and decadent and inefficient, and that the challenges of the 21st century depended upon ideological strongmen. You could break a few eggs to make an omelet. The eggs were always people, by the way. And they would find ornate ways to excuse them uh, and praise the efficiency of a five-year plan. And this was a very fashionable opinion in the 1930s. Uh, Anne Murrow Lindbergh wrote a pamphlet about it to Charles Lindbergh's wife. It was very well written. Certainly people on the left did it in praise of Stalin or, or, or you mm -hmm. know, certainly in, in Lenin and, and the fetishization of, of the communist revolution, uh, which, of course, is just another form of tyranny. And then people got into the false choices, the false duality, you know, this is particularly true in Germany, where people excused the rise of the Nazi regime as being a check on, on communism. This is the feedback loop that makes people fall into very bad decisions, not seeing the course shoe effect that you speak of. That at the end of the day, all totalitarians, even, you know, no matter what their ideology says on the surface, are similar. They're similar in their disdain for liberal values and democracy, by which I mean individual rights, human rights, rights of property, uh, freedom of religion, freedom of speech, freedom of assembly, the things that America is founded upon. And, and that's the great cautionary tale. That's also the hopeful tale, because eventually America and its allies, liberal democracies of various flavors, when their back was to the wall, was able to summon a kind of courage and creativity and determination that autocracies can't. And I think that's one of the things we need to remember. And that's one of the uses of history right now. That's not to say there's a perfect one for one. And that's not to say that the people, you know, we may disagree with about Vladimir Putin or de facto communists or Nazis. I'm not saying mm. it's necessary to offer that caveat. But, you know, Mark Twain once said, you know, history doesn't repeat, but sometimes it rhymes. And so a lot of my work is based on looking for the echoes of history, the rhymes, and sort of using history as one lens with which to judge our current events, because perspective is the thing we have least of in our politics. And so as a you know, a, a journalist and a historian, I, I like applied history. It's a useful tool to offer an imposed perspective. And that's particularly a moment that I think is ripe for us to understand right now. So as we think about these historical trends, you know, one of the things that has struck me has been people's evolution over time, right? Where you have someone, when they're in power, actually take a very respectable, reasonable approach, uh, you know, guided perhaps by ethical, moral principles. And, you know, of course, your former boss, Giuliani, strikes me as, you know, one such person where, you know, his response to 9-11 was something that motivated a nation and moved a nation. Needless to say, the role that he has played over the course of the last five years is a fundamentally different one 
than the role that he played 20 years ago. Mm. And so I wonder if you could speak to, you know, him, obviously, I'm, you know, you're familiar with, so I certainly want to hear kind of your sense of what changed for him. Sure, I know what you're saying. You know, one of the things that Rudy used to say and believe is to be locked into partisan politics doesn't permit you to think clearly. And that was from the perspective of someone who was a, a centrist Republican of a America's largest city uh, and part of a third way generation of mayors who there was a new, a new Republic cover uh, story by Peter Beinert called The New Progressives about Rudy and Dick Reardon hmm. and Stephen Goldsmith and Michael White in the 1990s who did a great deal in predominantly Democratic cities to turn around urban America at a critical point after it had been in a period of, of, of multi-decade decline. I'm a card-carrying centrist and independent, and those mayors— We have a club, by the way. It's not a very happy one all the time, but, but we have meetings. Yeah, no, well, you know, I'm, I'm <laughs> trying to remember. I, mean, I, I you know, my, my first book was called Independent Nation as a history of centrist leaders in American politics and how some succeeded and some failed. But I, I, I mention that because I think being mayor of New York forced Rudy Giuliani to be a practical politician. And, and you know, he's the first, he would be the first one to admit he wasn't perfect. Um, and he had real blind spots that, you know, by, by their very nature, he could not see. But he was willing to work with Democrats and, and had an enormous record of success in a very short period of time in terms of turning around a lot of trends that had, had hurt the city dramatically crime, welfare, economic investment, quality of life. Again, the quote is, to be locked into partisan politics doesn't permit you to think clearly. And it's an echo of what his, you know, former, every New York City mayor's icon, uh, Fiora LaGuardia said, there's no Republican, Democrat, or socialist way to sweep the streets. Hmm. There's a certain practicality that that job and responsibility brings. I think we've created and exacerbated an incentive structure in our country and our politics rooted in what I see as one of the original sins of, of our current era, which is hyperpartisanship and polarization reinforced by economic structures and echo chambers and ecosystems. And the more time people spend in those and they profit politically and personally and professionally from polarization, the more they become isolated from the sorts of of of, of human responsibilities that keep them rooted in the essence of a diverse democracy. You know, you start making all your money going on TV and giving on right-wing talk TV and giving speeches to right-wing groups. And slowly, through a series of rationalizations, I think you start to justify things that you would not have been able to justify before. And look, there's also a belief that people, as they get older, get more so. Mm. The Rudy Giuliani of the last several years has none of the judgment or character or filter of the person I knew and was proud to work for. And I think there's still a lot of lessons to be learned, and in addition to, I think, understanding the mistakes he made. But objectively, the 20 years of Rudy and Bloomberg in New York City should be regarded as an extraordinary period of renaissance in a city that many believed was ungovernable beforehand. But I, I think the desire for attention, the operatic love of playing a pit bull, playing a case to the court of public opinion, and, and the fact that Trump seems to enable people's worst instincts. But I never in a million years would have believed that Rudy Giuliani, who I knew, would you know, stand at the Capitol and say it was time for trial by combat. Someone who believed very sincerely, as one of the preeminent lawyers of his generation, uh, that law was a search for the truth would be sent out 
willingly to lie about election results in an attempt to hold on to power. It's heartbreaking to see. It does not reflect the totality of the man's career. It's the way he has chosen to go out on the final chapter. And it's a tragedy on, on many levels. So obviously there's a lot of personal elements here that I don't think we, mm -hmm. can, we can generalize from. But you mentioned the incentives of the political structure that we have, the mm -hmm. hyperpolarization, the echo chambers, these things that force people into boxes and mm -hmm. that amplify, I think, people's instinct, people's worst instincts to appeal to that, you know, very narrow ideological viewpoint. You know, whether it's Rudy Giuliani, uh, you know, with the far right ecosystem or it's, you know, uh, elements of the far left ecosystem, which thankfully I don't think has gone quite as far as the right wing ecosystem has. But, you know, there there's still certainly dangers and risks there as we look at Twitter mobs and, you know, whatever else. And so I wonder, are there do you have any thought about how we could try to counter some of these incentives or, or perhaps how we could offer counter incentives, right? Incentives mm -hmm. to contradict these that might try to bring people back to a reasonable center. Look, I think about it all the time and we discuss that uh, a, a lot. And I'm a big also believer in solutions journalism to the extent that I think we need to not simply point out problems to people, but offer solutions. And that was one of my rules uh, when I started out a, as a columnist. I, I, we are dealing with larger forces, but in some ways we're dealing with very small forces. The impacts of fear and greed, uh, teamism, tribalism. Uh, and, and one of the things our politics can teach us is how dangerous tribalism in, in politics truly can be. And it's one of the reasons the Founding Fathers warned against uh, this, uh, which is the subject of, of my book, Washington's Farewell. It was a core warning of George Washington, you know, to not give in to the, the, the passions of faction, hyperpartisanship, tribal politics, focus on what unites us, not what divides us. I, I believe most people are good, but I do believe that many people will fall under the sway of the loudest voices or people in power, the incentive structure at any given time. And so, yeah, I think people will trade a lot of their principles for knowing what jersey they're supposed to wear to monetize their talents. And it's sometimes just that cynical. They come up with all sorts of ornate justifications, usually focusing, obsessing over the perceived problems of the quote-unquote other side while ignoring the contradictions to their alleged core principles that are paraded on their side of the aisle. Um, I think fundamentally, if I could offer one solution, I think it's a combination of redistricting reform open primaries, and ranked choice voting. I think that would go a long way to adjusting the incentive structures in our politics, to have more competitive general elections so people felt they had to keep in mind the reasonable edge of the opposition. They couldn't simply play to the base, which creates itself an incentive to be ever more extreme, to avoid uh, getting attacked from your far left or far right flank. Open primaries would build that in even further by saying you want to appeal to independence in the primary, not simply you know, don a new mask and strategy for the final sprint of a general election. And ranked choice voting creates where it is put in place, and I think it will be adopted and it should be adopted much more, uh, for actually speaking well of your opponents that you agree upon. It puts <laughs> a incentive towards civility, civility because you want to build the broadest possible coalition. If you can't be someone else's first choice, you want to be their second. That combination of things at basically the, the ground floor of politics before people are running statewide, Senate, governor, let alone president, I think would go a long way. Because right now what you see is that members of Congress, and I don't know that people fully appreciate this, will often privately say that they cannot vote for the thing they know is the right thing to do for the country 
because they're afraid it will cost them their job at a primary. That is one of the most common private complaints you hear from people in politics. They are effectively captives to the system. I don't have a ton of sympathy for it uh, because it's cowardice. It's a civic cowardice. Um, but I understand, and, and, and I think, you know, human beings are rationally self-interested creatures. So, you, you know, as James Madison and the founders understood. So we have it within our power to adjust the laws and the incentive structures to revive the ideas and ideals that undergird liberal capitalist democracy. We have been asleep at the switch. And so a lot of the checks and balances the founders gave us, studying the fall of Rome and, and ancient Greek uh, republics, are not effective right now. You don't see the, the, the legislative branch acting as a check on the presidential when the presidents act as a person of their party. You see the increasing politicization of the judiciary with damning effects in terms of an overturning of, of laws that have vast supermajority opinion, but also them losing a degree, a high degree of legitimacy in the eyes of the people because they're seen as a political branch and a partisan branch. These things are all entwined. We have reaped what we have sown for decades. We need to, and I'm evangelical about this, wake up and throw our shoulder to the wheel and save and solve this problem to save what, as I absolutely believe, the last greatest, you know, the, the last best hope of Earth, America. And, and to understand that the ideals of liberal democracy are not exclusive to the United States of America. It's just that we have a special fidelity because we are the only nation or first nation born upon the idea of not a tribal identity, but an idea that everyone can be a part. We need to jealously guard our best ideas, our best traditions, and the national stories that unite us. And these, these incentive structures have fundamentally screwed up the way our democracy works. You know, so the, I mean, that was a very, I think, uh, wonky answer that on the other hand could have incredibly far-reaching effects. So I think one of the things that perhaps we underestimate the impact of is that kind of wonky approach to uh, tweaking the system on the margins, which could have an outsized impact on, on the culture as a whole. But while we're in this kind of wonky domain, you know, I want to ask you your sense of the judiciary. You know, you mentioned it. Mm -hmm. And, you know, the arguments that a lot of folks who will defend the Supreme Court and who will defend uh, the, you know, the, the kind of judicial process as it is today and the political considerations that go into it is, well, it makes the justices and, and judges more responsive to the people given that they are unelected uh, in the first place. And this kind of makes them at least somewhat responsive, um, which, of course, you know, you you've kind of implicitly countered by pointing out that their decision on Roe v. Wade, in any case, went against the vast majority of the country's preferences. But, you know, I have actually a specific question. You know, there's been a lot of talk now about potential reforms that we could do in the judicial system. Mm -hmm. One that I think is quite popular and that I personally find to be rather compelling is uh, an argument in support of 18 year uh, term limits and then having the judges go back, the, the Supreme Court justices uh, kick back to uh, circuit courts uh, or rather appellate courts. But then there's kind of a more radical thought, which I, real, I, I don't think is honestly realistic, but I think it's an interesting thought experiment, at least, where in Israel, uh, judges are not appointed by political figures, right? Instead, they're appointed by a committee consisting of experts including some uh, some of whom are actually current justices, others are um, other experts. And, you know, there's the same debate happening in Israel right now as to whether or not that committee is overly anti-democratic or whether, on the other hand, it serves to protect the rights of the minority. Um, and so I wonder, what, what what's your sense of it? Are there reforms to the judiciary branch that could be done that would not be perceived as an attack on 
the foundations of our democracy. So first, let me say, you know, what I'm opposed to, which is packing a court. And the reason I know that is uh, that when FDR tried to do it in the 1930s, you know, it always seemed to me to be a self-evidently bad idea. And you got to apply the same principles again, no matter what parties in power. Uh, I do think jealously guarding the idea that our judiciary has to have nonpartisan credibility. You know, I, I don't know enough about the Israeli system you're speaking of, and I think there's a great deal of suspicion, as there should be, to smoke-filled back rooms, although they did give us Harry Truman, which turned out to be a pretty good call. <laughs> but I think the overt politicization and ideological agenda pursued by the parties, contrary to the will of the vast majority of the American people, is a fundamental problem to the credibility of the judiciary, which in turn is a fundamental problem for the balance of power structure that the founders put in place. Because, you know, the, it's the agreements of civil society that make a judge's rulings uh, enforceable at the end of the day. You know, you could, you know, there, there are nightmare scenarios that have unfolded in different countries at different times where the president disagrees with the Supreme Court and ignores it and says, what army do you have? Mm. And, and I don't think we can take things like that uh, for, for, for granted. Um, but I think, again, the original sin comes in pursuing, I mean, Holding up Merrick Garland and then pushing through Amy Coney Barrett was a raw exercise of partisan power and opportunism. And if and when Democrats are in the same position, they'll do the same thing and Republicans were howled. And that's all bad. Again, apply the same standards. Yep. Apply the same standards. And they didn't. They didn't even make any pretense. They had an opportunity to pack the court ideologically and they took it. And then they pushed through every single agenda they said they would never put through, including justices saying they would not doing it, lying to effectively the American people in the Senate. I, I look, democracy in part means, you know, you know, it reflects the will of the majority. And that doesn't mean you put every, you know, civil right. And look, abortion is a deeply difficult personal issue and good people can disagree. I happen to believe that every abortion is a tragedy. I also believe that ultimately it's between a woman, her doctor, her family and her God. Mm. And we're in a a, a place where a lot of assumptions have been shattered. But I think it's it's the kind of conversation we should have while steering away from the feedback loop that says this raw, ex like all of a sudden conservatives love activist judiciaries. Well, please. And, and of course, it's enough to make you cynical if you pay close attention. I, I want to go back to one thing you said, which is the idea of election reform being wonky. On one level, sure, I guess it is. But, but I, I think that underestimates the intelligence of the American people and the conversations we need to be having. You know, I've been looking at the progressive era recently around uh, Teddy Roosevelt's 1912 campaign and the history of third parties in America and looking at the speeches that they get. It's not my favorite era to Teddy Roosevelt, but it's interesting. You want to talk wonky. The 1912 campaign was really wonky. I mean, they are running a populist campaign, bandanas twirling in the air, middle-class revolt over, I mean, really wonky stuff. And I think there's a temptation to say that, you know, populism and, and, and politics on the level that people understand is some version of their different ghetto. Those are not the bold primary colors that we need to repair to. That's just us versus them demagoguery and dumbing down our democracy to the point where people don't feel the agency to defend or protect the gifts we've been given, and to form a more perfect union, the levers of which are politics and policy. So I, I, I think we, we can't be afraid to talk about the things we could do. We should only keep in mind the golden rule when we do them. And that's the other thing we've entirely lost. Any sense of 
treating other people as we would like to be treated. And that has got to be what undergirds our decisions. That is really very close to the, the social contract that undergirds democracy. You know, an assumption of goodwill between fellow citizens. And, the, you know, the biggest challenge that I see in that is, you know, there have been countless studies at this point that indicate that aggression and us versus them mentality is the is, is what goes viral. It's what mobilizes people. I mean, yep. we've seen the far right double, triple, quadruple down on the culture wars because that's what mobilizes people above and beyond, which I think is quite surprising, their own economic interests. Well, and so far from, you know, waving bandanas around about kind of very policy oriented questions. We've gone the exact opposite direction, and it's not clear to me exactly how we make our way back. That's very human. And when the economic interests were so-called vaunted, you know, very often they were actually economic interests wrapped up in culture war resentments at their time, class war resentments. You know, the, the, the human animal is very susceptible to tribal appeals. It is up to sort of an Enlightenment-based society, a liberal democracy, remembering the idea of democracy and liberalism are themselves counterbalances, right? Because it's not just, yeah. you know, mob-majority rule. It's respect for the rights of the individual and minorities, right? And, and minority groups on, on the basis of basic principles that apply to all people, equal justice under law, separation of church and state, etc. So I, I understand why those appeals work. I also understand why we need to have an educated citizenry to defend against them. And I think it's one of the reasons why we desperately need to reinvest in civic education again, mm. to understand our history again. I think when you look at the technological drivers of the fragmentation we're dealing with, and they are a serious factor in all of this, right? You know, right now, the way that social media in particular is monetized is through engagement. People are more likely to stay engaged when they are uh, addicted perversely, ironically, unfortunately, to anger and anxiety and resentment. A lot of the deeper purpose and identities that had undergirded them have been lost. A sense of connection to community, a sense of purpose and responsibility in their lives. And so people become a sort of dopamine-addled collection of their uh, instincts and resentments and tribal affiliations. And, and you, what we need to understand that things like the rise of QAnon during covid in the conjunction with the last election, are one of those cartoon evils that should open our eyes. Like, really? Really? We had a belief that one political party was dominated by a satanic pedophile cabal, and it was all a, a, a basically an online LARP <laughs> designed to almost make fools of the people who believe it. But it turned into a political force because people were shut in and went down rabbit holes doing their own research. Like, the Algorithm reform is another baseline, as far as I'm concerned, along with reforming the Electoral Count Act, a baseline thing this Congress needs to deal with. And there's some bipartisan support to do it. You know, Facebook whistleblower Francis Haugen told us about an internal study that Facebook did. A woman named, uh, they created a dummy account for a woman named Carol. Carol didn't exist. But Carol allegedly uh, lived in Wilmington, uh, North Carolina. She had three kids. She was 41 years old. Um, her only interests were conservatism and Christianity. She liked Fox News and Donald Trump. And they basically set up this dummy account and they let it go to see what would be served up to her algorithmically. With the additional caveat that she didn't actually tweak the algorithm by liking things, anything else, right? It was just what would be put in her feed. And, and within, I think, two or three days, Facebook's own internal researchers 
said, you know, that that she was getting served up QAnon and extremist content. So conspiracy mm. theories and extremism content. Within two weeks, they said her account had become, I remember this word precisely, a cesspool of extremism and conspiracy theories. That's a function of the algorithms. That's a function of the fact that they are uh, driving people towards the extremes, not out of any intentionality necessarily, but because it's good for engagement. Those are things we can fix. <laughs> you know, those are rules. Like the, the, those are that, that, that doesn't even deal with Section 230. Mm. That just says that the, the algorithms that have been put in place have created an incentive structure that's bringing out the worst in humanity and is turning us against one another and, and mainstreaming conspiracy theories and conflict. And I think it goes a long way to explaining how Donald Trump was able to rise from, you know, reality show toy businessman absurdity because his means of communication is laden with conflict and conspiracy theories. And, you know, it proliferated in this environment. So that's the other thing we need to do. We need to do it. It's not optional. So, you know, this is actually an unexpectedly optimistic take, right? Because basically yeah. what you're saying is that there are very clear interventions that we can take that would actually have significant impacts on the culture writ large, that this isn't something yep. that's just broken. It's only broken if we refuse to fix it. Right. Well, so the last question I have, you know, because obviously I'd be remiss if I didn't mention your book, uh, Lincoln and the Fight for Peace. <laughs> Thank you. And in your book, you looked at the lessons drawn from Lincoln during the denazification and Cold War period. And now, obviously, we're going through our own, you know, pretty challenging global period. And, and there's going to have to be an element, actually, I think, uh, you know, over the course of the next decade, two decades of kind of our own denazification, uh, not, not, of course, in the U.S., I mean, in, in, in Russia and Eastern Europe and, 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 and beyond. And so I wonder if you can kind of elaborate on some of the lessons that you drew from Lincoln and, you know, to your earlier point about applied history, you know, see the extent to which you can apply them to the global situation today. So my book, Lincoln and the Fight for Peace, takes an unexpected turn for most people picking up a Lincoln book. It focuses on the last six weeks of Lincoln's life, beginning with his second inaugural. Uh, with Miles Tordon, with Charity for All. But it spends a lot of time, as I did in my last book, Washington's Farewell, on the afterlife of the idea. And I found a quote from General Lucius Clay, whose name is not well known enough to Americans today, but he was the American general who oversaw the German occupation. And he was a son of the South, born 30 years after the Civil War, grew up in Macon, Georgia. And a reporter asked him, you know, as, as the quote-unquote good occupation was ending, you know, what guided your decisions? And he said, I tried to think what Abraham Lincoln would have done for the South if he had lived. And that was so profound to me and so unexpected to me that that was sort of the seed the book came from. The book is very much about Lincoln's plan to win the peace after winning the war and his vision for national reconciliation and reunification. And his invention of a, a, a style of leadership rooted in his understanding that especially after a civil war and a democracy, you could not simply pound your enemies into submission and salt their fields. You had to learn to live together again. And so Lincoln's basic prescription for winning the peace is unconditional surrender followed by a magnanimous peace. Precisely the policy that we did not follow in, under his successor, Andrew Johnson, in Reconstruction, but precisely the policy that FDR and Churchill pursued, and then Harry Truman in the aftermath of the Second World War and even before the war was ended, an official policy of unconditional surrender. Uh, and then culminating in the Marshall Plan, which is the you know, apotheosis of, of a vision of a magnanimous peace. It's the opposite of reparations. It's an investment in peace uh, from a position of strength. And I think what Lincoln uh, teaches us, particularly as applies to that time, is that 
we need to combine moral courage with moderation. That is something that we don't see very often. Very often, moral courage comes with a sense of moral superiority uh, and, and a dehumanization of the people you defeat. And that is not the right way to heal the breach. You need to help lift them back up, uh, as, as America did. That means investing in rebuilding, but also removing the top tier of people leadership uh, that has been corrupting and corrupt dead. I mean, the process of denoxification, uh, which, you know, Lucius Clay wrote about a lot, the structure of the Nuremberg trials and the speeches by uh, Justice Jackson, uh, who's a, a, a figure who also deserves a much more veneration than I think he gets today, was all about applying the rule of law, about a degree of transparency so the German people could not deny the reality of the Holocaust, not that that hasn't stopped people, unfortunately, about America and its allies uh, for a concerted period of time investing in peace to act as a bulwark against communism and to establish uh, liberal democracies under under a rubric of collective security, NATO uh, and, and the EU, which I think we had begun to take for granted. And we one of the things that we should learn from Putin's invasion of Ukraine is that we take democracy for granted at our peril. We take lib, uh, the, 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 the structures the multilateral structures that helped America and its allies win the peace after the Second World War were put in place for very good reason. And I think people realize that about NATO now. And one of the knock-on effects of this is that, you know, Finland and Sweden are in the process of joining. That's extraordinary in a way that I don't think many people fully appreciate. But it, it's exactly the kind of thing we, sh we should do. I think we need, um, I, I, that the UN serves a valuable role, uh, but I think we also need to have a, a, an alliance of democracies that are trading together and operating together as a counterweight to the autocracies that feel uh, that they can, you know, bifurcate their world and, and under the rhetoric of sovereignty, literally get away with murder. And, and I think, you know, we'll see how durable the Chinese and, and Russian alliance is uh, over the long term. But I think people should feel invigorated that this is a challenge of our times. It is the definitive good fight. Mm defending liberal democracy, that it's rooted in the idea that there's more that unites us than divides us as Americans and, in fact, as human beings. And it draws on our best traditions. Well, I can't think of a better note to end on than that one. And, and certainly, I, I believe that uh, striving for an alliance of democracies is a very worthy cause. I'd encourage our audience to uh, buy Lincoln and the Fight for Peace. It's an incredible book. And I think applied history is something we could use a whole lot more of. So with that, thank you, John, for uh, joining us today. Thank you. You're a real pleasure. Take care. And with that, thank you all for listening to this episode of Winter is Here, brought to you by the Renew Democracy Initiative and Substack. I'm your host, Yuri Lepstein. At RDI, we are committed to pulling American democracy back from the brink and restoring its place as a global beacon for freedom. If you'd like to support the show, please subscribe for free on Spotify, Apple, or at whatever podcast player you use or at renewdemocracy.substack.com and share the episode with a friend. You can also become an RDI subscriber at rdi.org. Thanks again and see you next time.